On this episode of Psalm Sketches, we'll be taking a look at Psalm 27, which begins with the famous line, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And as you might expect, we'll be talking some about where fear, and particularly fear of the anxious variety, comes from in the Christian walk that we, we all share. So, let's take a listen first to a song based on the psalm, and then we'll take a few minutes to discuss it. Psalm 27 out of the NIV. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. 
One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. One reason this psalm is so often quoted, in my opinion, is that it just it just encompasses all the, the forces that create stress, anxiety, and fear in our lives. And for many of us, the fear that we face in life is more daunting than the circumstances that cause hardship in our lives. When FDR said, the only thing we have to fear is fear ourselves. When he presented that idea to the American people, I think he tapped into a very, a very authentic and very true statement about human nature. We can handle a lot more than we think circumstantially. We can handle more pain than we think, financial hardship than we think. The real battle is in our minds. The real battle is in our hearts when anxiety and stress takes over. And what I think is so beautiful about the Psalm of David, Psalm 27, is that within these... Uh, what, 17 verses? Let's see, 14 verses. Within this short poem, we have uh, this sort of schematic for how to address each of the main sources of stress in our life. Let's take a look at what David highlights as a source of fear in his life. In fact, he starts with the, the question, the rhetorical question, whom shall I fear? The answer is nothing and no one. But David realizes that that's easier said than done. Though he has no real basis for his fear, he recounts to the Lord in a moment of honesty the different ways that he feels oppressed, uh, crushed, and afraid. Uh, one of the sources, of course, is the opposition of people. I've heard many people say, my job would be wonderful if it weren't for the people. Meaning, it's fairly easy to carry out a task and to learn a skill and to do it well and practice it well at work. But when you feel opposed by the people around you, these could be forces in your family, uh, colleagues at work, a boss, um, someone in your neighborhood who creates stress for you, a customer, a client. The forces of anxiety and antagonism that, that are created between people fill our lives all the time. We are awash in this kind of stress and anxiety created by other people that we bump into day to day. 
In David's case, these opponents, I think, were sometimes political, but he might also be referring to the opponents he faced earlier in his life. Remember, when people read the Psalms and they see so many Psalms about David's anxiety and anger and fear towards his enemies, I think they are, many scholars and readers are tempted to think that David had sort of a paranoia. But if you look at the story of David's life, he was opposed unfairly by many people, by his own son at the end of his life who tried to steal the kingdom from David's hands. Can you imagine what it'd be like if your greatest enemy was your own child? Uh, And earlier in his life, David, remember the story of David and Goliath. It's a biblical story most people know. David, in his courage as a young man, goes out to face the giant of the Philistines, Goliath. And Israel, terrified of this this mighty warrior who is heading up there opposing the opposing army, the Philistines. David goes out and challenges him with a few stones and a sling. He demonstrates remarkable courage. He does something that the seasoned soldiers of Israel were afraid and intimidated to do. And yet, when he conquers that giant, what happens to David? What happens is that he is pursued and uh, and the victim of attempted murder at the hands of the king Saul, who becomes jealous of David's accolades. What a terrible, terrible thing to experience. So David redeems Israel, rescues them from their enemies, inspires their armies, and then he's hiding in caves, running away from the very king he just delivered. So you can see why David has has an extraordinary basis for being angry at enemies and feeling surrounded and opposed at many points in his life. His own brothers, if we read closely uh, the passage about his calling to be king, when Samuel comes and anoints him, David is left out in the field because his father and apparently his brothers don't think he is worthy to be anointed as king of Israel. David must have struggled with recurrent doubts and fears created by the people who opposed him. But he also talks in the psalm about his own anxiety. He keeps saying, Lord, don't forsake me, don't leave me, don't be angry at me. And many of us wrestle with that internal anxiety as well, that fear that we are inadequate, that we are spiritually unfit and undeserving of God's love. And that stress, I think, can also be more powerful at times than the actual physical opposition of the people around us. That quiet, nagging anxiety we experience when we're alone, that we are unworthy of God's love, that he will not deliver us, that he will not forgive us. What a terrifying existential dread comes out of that. And again, I'm not simply talking about people who have no real faith in God. I'm talking about those who do have a faith in God as their uh, their master, their savior, as the creator of the world and the redeemer of the world, but still feel that somehow, some way, they will slip through the cracks in God's kingdom and he will abandon them in their time of need. So David is facing anxiety from from many sources here, from the people around him, his own anxiety in his heart, and to some extent a fear that God himself might oppose him. And in the midst of this, how does David respond? Well, I could probably list 20 different ways that he mentions in the psalm, but I want to focus on the first verse, the one that most of us know. The Lord is my light and my salvation. This is his premise. This is the opening line. Uh, When I teach literature to students, I often tell them, focus on the opening line of a poem. Focus on the first page of a novel. The first words of any work of art 
are typically, and talking about literary works of art, are typically extremely important. They roll out the basis or the premise for the argument made throughout the work. So David begins by saying, not whom shall I fear, but the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He makes this argument to himself. He has no reason to fear. Why? Because the Lord is his light. The Lord is his salvation. What do those two images portray? When we're looking at poetry, it's, it's wise because poetry is so tightly packed into usually a very small space. Most poems, lyrical poems, are very short. And what a poet is trying to do is to package within those images and phrases of the poem deeper meanings that you're supposed to unravel or unfold out of the image that he or she buries in the poem. So let's take a look at those first two. The Lord is my light. Why light? David, of course, uses an image that Jesus echoes many, many times in the New Testament. John, the Apostle John, echoes this. God is light, in him is no darkness. But in this passage, I think David is using this as, as a very poetical metaphor. He's talking about light as light. I think he's referring to the way that light was so vital to the ancient world. In darkness is where you are typically attacked by traitors. In light is where you could face your opponents with confidence. In the darkness, you couldn't be productive, right? This is back before they had electrical grids, before they had light bulbs everywhere. When the sun was up, you were able to see and produce things. When the sun went down, people retired from their work. So light conveyed the idea of security, of productivity, and of insight. You can see with light. You cannot see without light. So David is saying, Lord, when you are the light of my life, when I sense you bringing light into my life, then both spiritually and to some extent in the everyday operations of life, I can be more productive. I can see my enemies more clearly. I can encounter danger and difficulty with, with uh, more power and success when you are in my life. And salvation. Salvation is simply being rescued, being delivered. And it fits nicely into the psalm because David is talking about how his foes oppose him on all sides. He wants to be delivered. And salvation is something that doesn't happen out of your own strength. Salvation always comes from an external force. I don't need to be saved if I have the power to meet the challenge in front of me. I need to be saved when I cannot encounter the challenge and match it and defeat it in my own strength. So David is describing God in two ways. If God is my light, if God is the one providing the source of insight, uh, the power to be productive, the security to know where I stand, and if God is my rescuer, then I have no basis for fear because there is no one more powerful than God. There is no challenge I can encounter in my life which will outrank or outpower or outmaneuver the one who created the universe, the one who invented logic and reason. God is the source of power that cannot be overcome. But how do we appropriate that into our lives? David seems to come back to this doubt over and over again that just because the Lord is a source of light and salvation, he's not sure that will really manifest in his life. And that's, I think, what takes us to the end of the psalm when David talks about waiting on the Lord. Waiting. Our society does not like to wait. We as human beings don't like to wait. We want to be served right away. We want to have internet connections that move as fast as possible so that we can get the content we need, the services we need, that we can get the knowledge that we need on demand. 
But David is showing us that in the spiritual realm, speed and efficiency are not always how things operate. God does not always deliver us immediately. God waits, and he calls us to wait and to rest in him. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so, even though God is our light and can lead us to act and to seek, we are not just to seek solutions to our problems. We're supposed to seek God first and allow him to solve the problems. In fact, I think this is one of the biggest components of the Christian life or the Christian walk, as people call it, how to live out your faith that, that people don't get. We are taught to be proactive in the secular world, and proactivity is great. You want to solve problems before they start. You want to deal with problems before they become bigger than you can handle. And even Jesus says this. If you have a problem with your friend, go solve it. Don't wait till it blows up and the person takes you to court. Jesus understood that being active, proactive, was very important to life. But when it comes to salvation of a spiritual variety, you need to be willing to wait on God to act. Most of us aren't patient. I am not patient. Um, I, I... my wife always says I'm very patient, but I don't think it's really true. I think I'm just good at masking my frustration when I'm trying to set up a TV, uh, when I'm trying to get an electronic device working, when I'm trying to figure out how to fix something in my house that I was never trained to fix. It's very easy for me to feel that bubbling up, uh, percolating anxiety in my heart that makes me want to just punch the wall. But to be spiritually powerful to embrace what God offers us through his Holy Spirit, we have to sit back and receive. We have to sit back and wait. The only thing we are taught to do actively in the psalm is to seek God's face, to look for his light, to worship him, and then to let him solve the problems. And when we face anxiety over issues we have no control over, like the way other people behave, uh, over the doubts that crop up in our heart that we can't really Uh, just snap our fingers and make go away. Our response is to rest and to worship. David says this thing over and over in the Psalms that doesn't make a lot of sense. I want to spend every day in your temple. It's almost as though David envied the priests who got to be in God's court. But I doubt David went into the temple every day. I think he's using the temple as an analogy of closeness to God. And we today, because we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, once we accept Christ, we have access to God through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. But that spirit is something I think we have to engage by being quiet and still, by creating space in our heart and our minds to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us, to calm us, to reassure us and to comfort us that God is our salvation. We are not our salvation. We cannot conjure up or build or manufacture salvation. And I'm not just speaking about our eternal salvation from the penalty of sin. I'm talking about salvation from everyday stresses. We can't control these things, and yet we try. We fill our lives with activity. We fill our lives with uh, with extra productivity, with checking things off of a list to try to fill the, fill the space that anxiety is filling. But the only real salve, the only real cure... Uh, for these anxieties is the ministry of God's Spirit to our heart. And so this is why we rely on God, why we wait for God, why we take heart, and why we seek His face. Now that might sound good, but you might say, well, what does that look like? That sounds very poetic. How do I seek God's face? I'll tell you one way before I wrap up this discussion of Psalm 27. 
I work with teenagers on a regular basis. I teach high school. And um, one of the things I've been talking about with uh, a lot of my colleagues in education is how anxious uh, adolescents are today. I mean, I had, I had anxieties when I was adolescent, but they ebbed and flowed. They came and went depending on circumstances. But children today are filled with constant anxiety. And there is some research that demonstrates that that is the constant preoccupation of the mind of an adolescent today with things like social media, with video games. Um, the mind is being overstimulated. The mind is so active that it never really turns off. It never turns back the dial. The lights are never dimmed in our minds. And so I believe that one of the best ways to resolve that anxiety is to create space for God to work. And it's very hard for God and His Word, I think, to compete with the intense, overstimulated attitude of our minds. We need to, as David says many times in the Psalms, meditate. I'm not talking about some sort of transcendental meditation, although it's based on a similar principle. Right? We're not just emptying our minds, but we are, in a sense, dumping out uh, the, the garbage, the dross, the dirty water of our minds, this overstimulated anxiety. We're emptying that, and we are filling it with truth. Take five or ten minutes and sit quietly. Calm yourself down. Take some deep breaths. And just spend a few moments in prayer. And I don't mean just asking for things from God. That's an important mode of prayer. But I'm talking about uh, simply resting in God reciting a verse over and over again. If you need your Bible open to do it, that's fine. The Lord is my light and my salvation. 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 Let him minister to you through his word. Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. It's not just a text we read for information. If we allow space for God to work through his word in our life, I think we can actually experience a great sense of peace, of calm, of confidence, and even a, a sense of spiritual connection to God that we often lack day to day because we don't create space for God to work. Now, of course, to meditate this way means you have to create time in your schedule. You have to sacrifice time. And we know time is money, society says. Time is important. Time is a finite resource, yes. But give God some of your time. Give him five minutes, give him ten minutes. Maybe listen to a Christian song that you love or a Christian album that you love. Put in some headphones. Take a walk in the park and just think about God. Worship God. Worship just means describing why he's so good and thanking him for what he's done. You can hum a song to yourself. You can talk to the Lord. You can vent your anxieties. First Peter says, I believe it's First Peter, cast all your cares upon me for I care for you. So just talk to the Lord the way you would talk to a friend and vent. Process what you're going through externally and then just allow some silence and allow God to work through your, your mind, the way you think, in your heart where that anxiety is seated. And I believe God can transcend the mental struggles, the heart struggles, the emotional struggles that plague us day by day. It doesn't make the circumstance go away, but as David says, it allows us to take heart, to be strong enough to encounter these things which God can enable us to do, but only once we are resting in Him, waiting for Him, and trusting and worshiping Him day by day. Well, I think I'm going to wrap up our discussion there today. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope that you take some time to dig into Psalm 27 for yourself. Feel free to message me or leave a comment on Twitter uh, at Psalm Sketches, and I just am so appreciative that you would listen to this podcast. I hope it's a blessing.
Take care.